I'm Heather Bushman for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. Today on N Equals One, I'm talking to Allison Caldwell, a PhD graduate student in our neurosciences program. Well, that's her day job anyway. By night, she's known as Allie Astrocyte on Twitter, and she and her partner produce Neurotransmissions, a popular YouTube channel about neuroscience. Allie talked to me about her research, her love of making science fun and accessible, and how getting people engaged in science is especially important in today's era of pseudoscience and fake news. So first, tell me about your research. So you're in neurosciences. What do you do? Yeah, so I uh, study cellular and molecular biology, and my focus is on a particular kind of brain cell called the astrocyte. So when you say neuroscience, you think of neurons, because those are the cells that get all the attention, and then for good reason, they do all the communicating that keeps us walking and talking. Um, but it turns out that about half of the brain are actually not neurons. They're another class of cells called glia, which literally means brain glue. And uh, for a very long time, they've been sort of underappreciated. Uh, it's only been in the last 20 years that scientists have really begun to understand that these cells are more than just scaffolding for neurons. They actually play these really critical active roles in the development of the brain and how the brain responds after injury. So I'm studying these cells called astrocytes, which were named astrocytes because the first time they were seen through a microscope, they thought they looked like stars. Mm -hmm. um, they're these great big bushy cells that we used to think were just there to hold neurons in place, but they actually play a lot of roles, um, including maintaining a lot of the homeostasis for neurons, so they help um, just shuttle nutrients from the blood vessel to the neurons and clear out neurotransmitters from the cleft and kind of keeping everything clean. Um, and about 20 years ago now, a uh, scientist named Ben Barris up at Stanford um, actually recently passed away. I know, I, really I saw sad. that. Yeah. Um, so a scientist named Ben Barris and uh, his colleague Frank Frager uh, identified um, a role for astrocytes in the formation of synapses between neurons. So it's not just that they're supporting neurons, but they're actually um, actively influencing how neurons are connecting with one another. And this has spawned a whole field of research that's being continued on by many of Ben's own uh, trainees, including my PI. And people are trying to understand how astrocytes and other glial cells are playing a role in these interactions. So my research is focused on identifying the proteins that astrocytes secrete that might be affecting the ways that neurons are growing and communicating with one another. And how did you get interested in this area of research? Actually, it's kind of interesting. I think many people come into grad school with a very specific idea about what kind of research they want to do and some kind of question they're really interested in answering. And I came into grad school with very broad interests. I thought I wanted to study spinal cord injury, and I did a rotation in a spinal cord injury lab and realized pretty quickly that that lab was not a great fit for me. Um, but by the time I got to grad school, I'd had enough experience in research that I knew that I really wanted a lab where people mattered as much as the projects. So I actually kind of came to astrocyte research because I came to my lab. So I had interviewed with my advisor. I really enjoyed speaking with her. She let me do rotation in her lab. And I just really felt like it was a good fit for me. The people were really kind and really um, helpful, you know, very willing to spend time training me. My PI was able to give me a lot of hands-on training. I met with her frequently, and I could see that that was the kind of relationship I wanted with an advisor. Um, and it helped that astrocytes are awesome and really exciting <laughs> to study. But uh, I think that 
Um, for me, it was more about the lab because even if I had the coolest project in the world, if the lab wasn't a good fit, it wouldn't have been that cool. Um, and having a great lab and a cool project makes it that much better. Yeah, I, that's so funny because it's exactly what happened to me when I came into grad school thinking I wanted to study viruses. Checking out some labs, not a good fit, end up in a lab just kind of by accident, rotating that study bacteria and thinking, oh, I'm not interested in bacteria, <laughs> right? And then it's like, oh, but wait, these people are amazing yeah. and doing really interesting stuff. And I've said the exact same thing before that you can have the greatest project in the world, but if you're miserable in your lab and have no help, then yeah. you're bound not to succeed. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I'm totally an astrocyte convert now too. I mean. Because when I, you know, when I heard my advisor speak before I rotated in her lab, you know, I thought the project sounded interesting. And then once I started reading the literature and once I actually worked in the lab, I was like, wow, this is really amazing because where we are with astrocytes now is where we were with neurons 30 years ago. You know, there's yeah. just so much that we don't understand about these cells. And, you know, I mean, if you talk to people who are really hardcore about glia, they'll tell you that glia are the most important and they do everything. <laughs> and, um, I just think it's really cool that they add this whole other level of complexity to the brain. You know, you used to think, oh, if we can just map out the neurons and their connections, then we'll have the answers. And it turns out, like, no, oh, there's all these other complicated levels, all these other cells that are influencing those connections all the time. Uh, so are there any uh, human diseases known yet that are the result of some malfunction in astrocytes? Actually. You could argue that most neurological disorders, many of them, most of them, it kind of depends on how you classify it, many neurological disorders have been associated with astrocyte dysfunction. Um, so for example, epilepsy has been associated with changes in the clearance of neurotransmitters from the synapses. So if you have too much excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate in, in the synapses, then that's going to cause overstimulation, it's going to cause seizures. Um, Glial scarring is a huge part of the injury response after brain injury or spinal cord injury. So a lot of scientists are trying to understand what's happening to the glia there, and, and is it helpful or is it harmful? And it kind of looks like it's both at this point. Um, there are a number of neurodevelopmental disorders that have been associated with astrocyte dysfunction. So um, for example, Rett syndrome is a really good example where in Rett syndrome, if you have neurons in a dish and you grow them with Rett syndrome astrocytes, you end up with neurons that look like Rett syndrome neurons. Oh, wow. But if you do the opposite, if you grow Rett syndrome neurons with normal wild-type astrocytes, you end up with wild-type looking neurons. Yeah. So there's a very clear connection between these astrocyte proteins and neural function, but we really just don't understand very well what that connection is at this point. So what does life in the lab look like for you? So you're growing cells in a dish. So kind of describe what it looks like when you're at the bench on a normal day. Yeah, most of my time is spent in the tissue culture room. I spend most of my time in the tissue culture room because I'm isolating a lot of astrocytes. So a lot of my work is isolating astrocytes in vitro and in a dish and then growing them in a minimal media so that I can look at the proteins that the astrocytes themselves are secreting. So I'm in there constantly generating samples and um, it's kind of a long, it, it, my samples are very precious because it takes me about 12 to 14 days from start to finish to generate the culture, to grow them, to confluence, so to grow them so there's enough cells in the dish, and then to add the, the minimal medium so I can then condition my cells and then collect those proteins and look at them in depth. 
Um, so most of my time is in the tissue culture room, either isolating cells or caring for my cells. Um, if I'm not taking care of my astrocytes, I'm conducting assays where I isolate neurons from the cortex, and then I'm, I'll use my media from my astrocytes and see what the different um, see what different effects I get with my media on my neurons, depending on the conditions of my astrocytes. Um, but I also do a lot of I kind of joke that my lab is like what you imagine when you imagine a lab in a movie because it's like all the glass bottles and the pipettes and the hoods and everything. So I spend a lot of time pipetting things, um, doing the kind of boring stuff that people think of when they think of science. Um, but each day is different, uh, which I really love. Um, I get to make my own schedule and kind of prioritize my own experiments. So I'll do a lot of quality control. I do staining and imaging. Um, but then I also have entire days where I'm just at my desk analyzing data or putting together a talk or something like that. All right, so switching gears. So on Twitter, you're known as Ali Astrocyte, and you have a YouTube channel called Neurotransmission. So tell me what that is and when you started it and why. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of fell into science communication by accident, sort of. Um, so I've always been a writer, I've always enjoyed writing, but I never really thought to marry my love for science with my love for writing until I got to grad school. And um, what ended up happening is my first year of graduate school, some people might know this, I don't know if you know this, the UCSD Neuro Department, every time the Society for Neuroscience Conference comes to San Diego, we do a parody music video. So we, we do this to advertise for the party that we host during SFN here in San Diego. And my first year of graduate school, I learned that the students were getting ready to make this music video. And I said, oh, well, you know, my partner, he is really into filmmaking. My partner's been making films the entire time I've known him, just for fun, as a hobby. So he did them for college projects, and he had his own YouTube channel about comic books. And I was like, well, if you need some help, you know, if you want somebody who's familiar with filming and editing, you should talk to him. And so they brought him on board and did this whole project and what what came out of that was the video get data that kind of went a little viral in the scientific community and it was really fun um, we had so much fun making that video and everybody was really excited because we had someone who had a lot of experience with editing film and editing audio and so after that um, a colleague a classmate of mine contacted me and he said, hey, you should check out this video contest. And it was a link to the Society for Neuroscience Brain Awareness Week video contest. So it's through brainfacts.org, which is their outreach arm. And it's just an annual contest where any member of SFN can submit a video and just on any topic about the brain and has the chance to win a prize and be honored at the conference and everything. And we were like, OK, well, that sounds pretty fun. So. Um, I wrote a script and we actually filmed that first video while we were traveling in the Rocky Mountains um, just for fun and entered it and ended up winning second place that year and that was in 2014 and so after that you know we kind of kept thinking about it and talking about it and we entered another video contest called the Flame Challenge which is another outreach contest. From the Ellen Elda Center, right? Yeah, yeah and um, just we're really enjoying this process of making these videos together and so we decided that we were going to launch an ongoing video series and our initial goal was at the time, this has changed a little bit, but at the time if you went on YouTube and you searched Introduction to Neuroscience, all you found were 
links to hour-long lectures of college courses, which is fine, but not a lot of people are going to sit and watch an hour-long lecture. So my goal with the initial series was, can I take the same things you would learn in a college lecture and break them down into five to seven minute long videos using animations to help clarify some of these concepts? Um, so I wrote that initial series and then acted as the host, and then my partner did all the animating and editing. And it, that was just kind of where it started. So we launched that in fall of 2015 and have been putting out videos pretty consistently every two weeks ever since then. And as of New Year's Eve this year, we just hit 10,000 subscribers. Oh my gosh, so. that's fantastic. So who do you think is your primary audience? Who's finding these and watching them? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. Um, YouTube actually gives a lot of detailed analytics. You can't kind of guess everything from it, but based on how people are finding us, a lot of people find us through YouTube search terms. Mm -hmm. So people are searching things like, what is a neuron? What are the parts of the brain? Um, actually, our most popular video right now is the neuroscience of eating disorders. Mm. So these are people who are very curious in these basic science questions. They want to understand what are the underlying principles of the brain. And in, a lot of people are very interested in these questions of mental health as well. So yeah. the neuroscience of eating disorders, the neuroscience of anxiety. Um, and we get a lot of, a lot of our comments come from students, um, mostly early undergraduate students, saying that they, they used our video to help study for a test. So I think it's primarily um, students who are either just starting to study neuroscience or maybe taking a class with a unit on neuroscience and people who are interested in just understanding these underlying brain principles. So tell me about what's your favorite episode and what is it, how does it sound and look? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I have a couple, I guess. My favorite, well, the, my most recent favorite because it was, um, it was a very tough episode to write, and I'm really glad that we did it. So we just recently shared a video on the neuroscience of autism. Mm. And we did that video with our friend Corey, who hosts another YouTube channel called 12 Tone. And um, the reason that I really like that video is because one of the things that's really cool about having a platform is you have the chance to talk about issues that matter to you and to talk about issues in a way that feels good and productive. Um, so this video about autism was especially important because Corey is autistic. And so we had the opportunity to have an autistic person participate in the process of making this video and helping us talk about it in the right way and make sure that it was accurate in terms of neuroscience, but also making sure that we were clear about uh, the autistic experience and sort of how they feel about the research and the ways in which autism is diagnosed. Um, and that was just really great because it was very informative in terms of helping me understand the autistic perspective on autism research, but also this opportunity to share this productively with the community. So both people who are non-autistic, neurotypical people who might want to know more about the condition, but also so that autistic people have something they can share with their friends and family, and to know that that is being told from the perspective of an autistic person. So. so it sounds like you put a lot of time into this. Why do you think it's important to communicate about science to the general public? Um, I mean, a lot of the time that goes into this is because I think it's really fun. It's not <laughs> just because I think it's important. Um, I really love writing, and I love writing about science, and I love getting to share my excitement for the brain. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize how science affects them on a daily basis, and many people are sort of told well, I'm not good at science, or I'm not a scientist, you know, leave it to the scientists. And I really want people to understand that you can be a scientist without having a PhD, and that you can care about science without studying science 
you know, in, in college or something. So I guess I would say I think it's important because science belongs to everybody and everyone should feel like it belongs to them. So kind of this video that we did on the neuroscience of autism, you know, I really wanted to incorporate the autistic perspective. And I did a video about the neuroscience of anxiety where I talked about my own experiences. And so some of that is being able to say like, hey, here's how science relates to your life and um, can empower people to feel more connected to the science. And I mean, science is really amazing, right? <laughs> like, it's this really cool thing that we have to help us understand the world. Mm -hmm. And I love getting to talk about it, and I love when other people want to talk about it with me. So just trying to share that with people and hoping that they find it useful in school or in life or whatever they need it for. So where are you in your grad school journey, and what do you plan <laughs> to do next? It's a very diplomatic way of framing the question that you're never supposed to ask. <laughs> hate, uh, so when are you going to be done? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm nearing the finish line. Um, I'm anticipating finishing um, spring of next year, so spring of 2019, um, which is pretty standard for my program. Um, but yeah, it's just it's really tough because you kind of never know where the project's going to go. And I actually think that in some ways. My research is going well, and I've identified some very interesting things to follow up on, but that is actually almost harder, right? Because then you have to decide, okay, what do I follow up on, and how far do I go? Um, but I'm hoping to finish by spring of 2019. I know that that's when my advisor wants me to finish. Um, and next steps, you know, I don't know. I really, really love my work with neurotransmissions, and I love the bench work, and um, academic science, you know, I love being in the lab and I love doing the research, but I don't know that I would love writing grants for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure that I want to pursue that route, but I'm also becoming very interested in the science of science communication and understanding how people understand scientific information and the things that make them either accept it or reject it and how our cultural values influence our belief in scientific fact and all of these different complicated questions that scientists often think are not that important. You know, many scientists think, well, if I just keep giving them enough facts, they'll believe me. And obviously, that's not how it works. Yeah. And in this day and age, it's really clear that we need to be more aware of the cognitive science underlying how we understand information if we really want to stand a chance at conveying accurate information and helping the public really know what's real and what's not. So I'm very interested in those questions. Um, and I also am very involved in the science communication community, doing a lot of work, organizing workshops to help scientists learn how to communicate science. So there's a lot of different things that I would love yeah. to do after I graduate. Um, and I hope that whatever I end up doing, I can incorporate all of those things. Yeah. But who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that does sound like the perfect marriage of communication and neurosciences, where mm -hmm. they come together and how people take in, process, and act on information. I mean. Um, yeah, I read all the time about, you know, there's data showing that more facts doesn't matter, mm -hmm. you know, and in some cases it makes somebody, it doesn't change someone's mind about something. Yeah. It may just make them dig their heels in further. Yeah. It's, it's complex. It's, it's difficult to, it's difficult to navigate. And I think that, you know, with the way that media, you know, digital media especially, with the ways in which people can access information that they could never access information before, it's so much harder for people to accurately assess 
the information they're receiving and to know how how realistic it is, right? Like, especially when we know that we're feeding into our own biases and we absorb the information that agrees with what we think. And there are all of these complexities around digital media that we haven't really fully thought through. So I'm very curious to see what we learn about that in the next decade or two. What do you think is one of your greatest challenges in being able to explain and convey science and, and reach people? Um, that's a good question. I haven't really thought of that very much. Um, I mean, a big challenge that I think many science communicators face is the echo chamber, mm. which is this question of, you know, how do you reach the people you really want to be reaching? And I've sort of taken this perspective on it. You know, many science communicators say, well, I want to reach the people who think that science isn't for them. But that doesn't mean that people who are already excited about science don't also deserve to have content made for them. So realistically, you know, I know that our videos are being watched by people who are seeking out that content. People don't just stumble into our videos. They look for them. I often call um, our audiences science enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. So either they are somebody with some scientific background or just somebody who proactively seeks these things out. Yeah. Yeah, I also have learned to recognize that I am not always the best person to speak on issues. So, you know, again, with this neuroscience of autism, I could have done that video by myself, but I didn't want to, to control that conversation, right? Like, I'm not the person who should lead that. So having Corey come and talk about it with us was a much more effective way of communicating to an audience about an issue that was very near and dear to Corey's heart. Um, so I'm very... I'm very interested in helping promote the voices of other science communicators as well, people who want to talk about their own experiences or who have experience with certain communities that they're trying to reach. Um, those kinds of things are really important to me as well. I think that one of the things I love about being a science communicator is having the chance to just show people that I'm a person. Um, and I think this is especially, you know, my persona on Twitter is a little bit different from my persona on YouTube. And it's not necessarily deliberate, but YouTube is like, okay, here's this informational video. And on Twitter, it's kind of like, hey, I'm a person. Like, I'm a scientist in the lab. I make mistakes. My experiments fail. And I think that that's a really good avenue to help people who are non-scientists understand that science isn't perfect. You know, I feel like we sort of have these two extremes where people see a headline and think that cancer is cured, or people don't trust science at all. And trying to find that middle ground to help people think critically about the science they're being presented with while not believing that scientists are out to get them or that there's some huge conspiracy of scientists lying about something like climate change. Trying to just show like we're all just trying to do the best job that we can and scientists have their own biases and their own issues that they bring to the lab. We're not perfect, but we're trying to use a system that we hope will answer questions as accurately as possible. Uh, because it's always changing, right? Like, that's part of why I love my field, is that we're just learning new things every day. So I hope that because of my science communication and the other efforts of other science communicators on digital media, making scientists so accessible to the public, that that will help, help non-scientists see that that's the reality. You know, like, I really get frustrated because when I meet people, they find out that I'm a neuroscientist, they're like, oh, you must be really smart. I'm like, <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, at this, because I've been doing it for a decade, but like I couldn't cut somebody's hair, you know, like I couldn't yeah. fix a sink. So it's just that I have sort of specialized training in this area that other people don't have. And that doesn't make me smarter than them. It just means that I have a different kind of intelligence. And I think that we can all share our intelligences to communicate science better and to realize that science is in everything and affects everything we do. Yeah. 
I hear you. I, I hate <laughs> when people say, well, well, you should know this. You have a PhD or something. It's like, like you said, yes, a PhD in a very specific thing. I can tell I you about the proteins on the surface of Streptococcus bacteria, but that is not going to help me, you know, change the oil in my car. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of science is just being patient enough to do something yeah. 800 times, yeah. not really any special education. Scientists are just people too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. That's it for this episode. You can find Allie on Twitter as at Allie, A-L-I-E, underscore astrocyte. To find her videos, go to YouTube and search Neurotransmissions. Thanks for joining us on N equals 1. You can find more of our episodes at health.ucsd.edu slash podcast.